From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. And it's been a long time coming, but we're finally returning with one of our patented Give me three episodes. But before we get into it, if you like what you hear today, subscribe to Film Forward on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from for weekly episodes where we not only do our Give Me Three episodes like we're doing today, we also interview filmmakers with new theatrical and streaming releases. And of course, we highlight all things LADFF. As I mentioned, though, Give Me Three is the name of the game tonight, and the subject is musicals, and there's nobody better to help me out with this category than my good friend, my brother from another mother, Max Sobkin. Max, how you doing? I'm doing great, Nick. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you very much for having me on. Man. I'm, I've been a fan of the podcast. I'm a fan of the film festival. And so I'm just really excited to be here talking about musicals. We had planned to record and release this episode prior to the film festival that we just did. But the day that we were going to record you and your wife, you bailed on me. You, you, (laughs) you, you fucking bailed on me because you and your wife had to go to the the hospital hospital to have a baby. I literally texted you from the bedside to be like, hey, man, I'm sorry. We're going to have to take a rain check on the uh, on the old podcast because I'm having a baby today. Let your listeners be assured she's healthy. She's fine. She'll be seven weeks old on Sunday. She's a gorgeous champion and, and a also, gift to the world. She's watched a lot of musicals in her already. In a very short life. <laughs> so being that we're home, you know, on maternity leave, I'm like, let's watch all our favorites. And so that's all we've been doing is watching musicals. We're quite funny. So when we do the next Gimme Three musicals, she'll be our guest. Yes, exactly. And it'll probably be like three episodes of Paw Patrol. I don't know. Do they have songs on <laughs> Paw Patrol? No idea. <laughs> I have no idea. We're not there yet, but thankfully. So before we get into it, Max. You yeah. you are a musical aficionado. You are you, you you know about musicals more than anybody that I know. What is it about musicals that you love? What got you into musicals? Sure, I should say that first. I'm an actor and a, an improviser and a just a true, a voracious consumer of media in general. But I have loved musicals since I was a child. I mean, like the first play I ever saw was Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat by Angel Lloyd Webber. And I saw it at Bridges Auditorium in Claremont. My mom took me and I was like, I don't know, six years old. And I have such a distinct memory of sitting in the front row of the mezzanine. You can see the whole stage at once with my arms like propped up on the railing, just absolutely captivated. And my mom and I went out for like ice cream afterwards. And I think I talked the entire time about just how much I loved it. She bought me the CD and I listened to the soundtrack every single night as I fell asleep. And so, like, I could be 90 years old and I will still remember the lyrics to every song from Joseph because it's burned deep into my lizard brain. It's like way deep in there. But I love stage musicals, I love movie musicals. And you know what they are? Is they're this kind of beautiful escapism. Mm-hmm. Right, they're they're as much a fantasy as Lord of the Rings 
or any Marvel movie or anything like that. But what's great about musicals that is different from other fantasy films is that they are all about humans. They're all about like the human emotion and the human condition and stuff like that. So people sing, you know, they sing their hearts feelings. They they are so overcome with emotion. They're so overcome with you know hate or love or whatever. They just literally can't contain it anymore and they <laughs> sing or they dance or right. you know they do whatever, which is just an you know an expression of any other kind in any fantasy movie. And Lord of the Rings, they get so mad that they pull out their swords and they attack each other. I mean like is that any more a fantasy than singing? They're the same to me in my mind. And I love Lord of the Rings and I love Marvel movies. And to me, they're all kind of part and parcel of the same thing. This is a fascinating take and I never thought about it that way, but I think you're totally onto something there. You know what's funny is when I was about six years old, my grandma showed me an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical that totally got me hooked on musicals. She bought like the double CD of The Phantom of the Opera. Sure. And I was like totally hooked and we just like, listen to it over and over and over again. And I like read the play and like read the lyrics. And then I remember like the first time when I was a kid, like getting to go see it at the Pantages. And I was like, totally jaw on the floor. Just like, Oh my God, this is, this is, this is magic. This is absolute magic. Right from the beginning when the chandelier reassembles itself. Right. Yeah. The organ comes in, you can feel like your skin vibrating because that bass is so rich. I mean, that's an, right. that's an incredible moment. Right. I got, I got goosebumps right now even just talking to you about it. I mean, yeah. I yeah. It. So Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know, even though he did make Cats, <laughs> he did he did hook us both on musicals. Yeah. For every Starlight Express, there's a <laughs> right. I mean, it, right. it is, it is, you can't win 100% of the time i mean that's true no one has that kind of track record i mean even christopher nolan made tenet so yeah come on he made a few stinkers yeah but let's get into it my friend we got give me three musicals and max we're gonna have you start yes i wanted to preface this before i start this is i think this is important to talk about just for a minute or two before we start yeah that is what is a movie musical Mm mm-hmm Okay, because I think that there are a lot of movie musicals, and I think that there's a lot of movies with music. Right. There's a true distinction there. There's a true distinction. So, you know, um, to me, a movie musical, the songs forward the plot and character development along. You can't really take those songs out of context and listen to them on their own without knowing where they fit in. And I think that there's a lot of good movies with music that kind of blur the line. They kind of come close. I thought of a few examples here and I was curious as to what you thought of these. A couple of my picks, I think, ride that line of like... Well, and that's fine. You know, they, yeah, they yeah. shroud the line, they go back and forth. And right. a few of these come close. Like 8 Mile? Mm-hmm. Man, that 8 Mile. That's a movie... Well, that's, that's a good point. Because it's a movie, movie music. with music, but some the of the music, music does tell the story. Doesn't yeah, it doesn't necessarily for the plot, but it, the music is the character development, and you're right, like, yeah. I don't, you know, that's close. Okay, what about Spice World? They're literally singing, you yeah. know, but does the music forward the plot? Not really, but it's chock full of songs. Right. What about right. Purple Rain? See, Purple Rain, I would say, is a movie with music. Movie with music. 
Okay, how about The Blues Brothers? <laughs> That's a movie with music. <laughs> okay, it's a movie with music, but there is the scene where Aretha Franklin yes, turns to that's her husband, the one scene. Right. and says, you better think. And she literally sings to him. And the yeah. people at the cafe are sitting there and they're kind of like, wow, what's happening? And that is literally a scene out of a musical. And there's right. Ray Charles singing Shake Your Tail Feathers and they're dancing in the street. But it's not a musical in the conventional sense like Oklahoma is a musical. Right. I mean, I would really argue that Blues Brothers could very well be considered a musical. Yeah. And I even have Fame here because Emily and I just watched Fame not too long ago. And Fame kind of has that same thing, except that there's not a lot of songs in Fame. There's like three. They dance in the cafeteria. They dance on the car, you know, in the street. Right, right. And like, that's kind of it. And so, you know, you're like, okay, if this is a musical, how can you only have two songs? Sure, the kids are all dancing and shit, of course. <laughs> but like, you can't, can you call yourself a musical if you only have two songs? It's a good question. Yeah, I bring this up because I think it's just important. It's an important thing for your listeners to consider. Genres, like all types of genres, there's so many blurred lines on either side. It's hard sure. to figure out exactly what we're talking about. But for me... For my purposes, the three musicals that I picked all are the very conventional musical style with the songs and the dancing that forward the plot and character. With the songs and the dancing. and the- <laughs> <laughs> Okay, my first pick and probably my all-time favorite. I'm just going to start with my favorite one. Wow, out of the gate. Yeah, I'm just going to come right out because if your listeners get bored by the end of this, then they won't have to listen to the others. <laughs> right, Why in God's okay. name would they get bored? <laughs> if this goes on, if we need an intermission in the middle of this, because we're talking long. By the way, I hope you start this with the overture and then an entreact in the middle. <laughs> okay, my number one pick, probably my, one of my all time favorites Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Okay, this is an MGM film, 1954. It's a truly kind of crazy show. It's directed by Stanley Donnan, who made On the Town with Gene Kelly and Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. He made Royal Wedding with Jane Powell and Fred Astaire and Funny Face and Charades. The guy's been around the block, done a ton of stuff. It also stars Howard Keel and Jane Powell. Howard Keel was in Annie Get Your Gun and Calamity Jane, all kind of all these like Western-themed musicals, which was definitely a, a genre. It was a real thing. Jane Powell in Royal Wedding, A Date with Judy, who has, like I swear, the tiniest hip to waist ratio that's possible it's insane it's insane it's they really cinch her up but for those of you who don't know the plot it's uh <laughs> it's about a man in 1850 in oregon who comes from his farm like in the mountain and he travels down to town and he's like i gotta sell these beaver pelts and also i've got to get me a wife and everybody's like you're crazy and he like turns the corner and there's the girl that he likes and he's like, you want to marry me? And she's like, all right. And this is within the first 10 minutes. I'm not spoiling anything. What he neglects to tell her, though, is that he has six brothers who are like basically feral animals <laughs> living on this farm with him. And he doesn't tell her. And then she has to, she gets there, she finds out, and she has to like tame them into human beings. It's based on a short story called The Sob and Women, which is in turn based on a Roman story called The Rape of the Sabine Women, which Rape is not actual rape in this context. It really just means kidnapping or abduction. But a story about how Romulus from Rome kidnapped the Sabine women of this neighboring town 
and held them hostage until the Sabine women fell in love with them. And then when the men came back, they were like, we don't want to be with you anymore. <laughs> they were like, oh, sure. <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's kind of the plot of this movie. It's so charming. It has absolutely incredible dance sequences, right? I yeah. Mean, Jaw-dropping dance sequences. The barn-raising scene, if you've never seen this, you're just hearing me say barn-raising scene. It's going to sound nuts, right? But the dancing extends beyond dance and into gymnastics and into like true straight-up athleticism. And it's extended. It's long and so impressive. And each brother has their specialty that they do bouncing on logs or flipping off of tables or, you know, I mean, really incredible stuff. Yeah, that was one thing that really blew me away was the dance sequences because, as you said, it goes beyond dance. It goes into gymnastics. It goes into, like, stunt work. And all of these dance sequences for a good portion, good portions of it, the camera's not cutting. It's just, like, it's just sitting on this incredible, impressive choreography. And you're just like, how is this? This looks inhuman. To be yes. able to pull this off. And I think when we watched it, Nick, I think we talked about this, like the difference between Seven Brides and, say, the Mary Poppins sequel, which to me is true train wreck of a film. The Mary Poppins sequel in that big lamppost dancing scene has like 80 cuts in it. I mean, it is like all over the place in terms of over-editing. And I would venture that those dancers were more than capable of doing the whole thing all at once, I'm sure they rehearsed it a million times just like that. But I don't know if it's like a stylistic change because that's what audiences want or if that's what they're expected. That's what executives think that they want to have too much like flashing. We can't sit on one shot for more than three seconds or people are going to get bored. They're going to throw their popcorn in the air and be like, what am I doing here? I mean, I think what's far more impressive is just watching extremely talented people do extremely talented stuff. Absolutely. That's why I and hired him. That's why you hire them. And Stanley Donnan is a master of this. I mean, all the movies, the big movies that he's directed on the town, Singing of the Rain, Royal Wedding, they all have the same thing. Extended dance sequences that are completely uncut, done by individuals who are at literally the top of their game. Right. Yeah, that scene in Singing of the Rain, that make them laugh scene is like mostly one shot, is it not? Yeah. Donald O'Connor, literally. Oh, yeah. It's like a couple. It's just a couple. I mean, maybe three or four, really. Right. Like, when he's running up the walls, he literally does a wall, a wall flip. Right. He just two and then dives through a wall. I mean, it's like, it's incredible. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's, that's what you take away, really, of all of these classic musicals. All of them have these long, extended cuts, these shots that just go on forever, which sounds bad, but I promise you, I mean, it's all the more impressive after you finish this big dance sequence, you pause the movie and you're like, oh my God, did they really do that all at once? Yeah, incredible. You know what I also love about this film too is that it was relegated to a second tier class when it was being made. It just like was not regarded as like a priority. It was meant to be filmed on location and they said, forget it. And MGM slashed the budget. And so it was all filmed on sound stages. And I think to its benefit, honestly, like it didn't need to be a big budget picture. I think sometimes it works against itself, like on the town, which is not one of my favorites. The whole thing's filmed on location in New York and it's kind of is a little full of itself, truthfully. It's kind of all, all over the place. But <laughs> Seven Sides has these incredible painted backdrops. I mean, so beautiful. And especially now when you watch them on your 4K TV, like 80 inches, 
when you're only sitting four feet from it. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. Like, I don't mind seeing the backdrops are painted. It's like when you watch Wizard of Oz, it's just like you're watching a play and that's okay. Yeah. That's fun. It's a different time. And I kind of like watching old films like that because it's like, it's a different type of filmmaking. And if you yeah. watch it through that lens, as it just a different type of filmmaking from a different a different era and a different golden era and be like, my God, it's a fabricated set, but yet they're still able to like pull these emotions out of you. It's almost more impressive. Right. I think very few people watch a musical and get so engrossed. You don't like watch and you're so engrossed. And you're like, I forgot that I was even a person. Like I was so into it. A musical in, kind of in some ways pulls you out because they start singing. Right. It's a fantasy moment, you know, that's totally fine. I think the painted backdrop kind of adds to that same level of fantasy. You don't sit in a theater watching a play and you're like, well, it pulled me out of this moment. And you're like, dude, there's people like sneezing and coughing and unwrapping candies right next to you. <laughs> right. You don't forget that you're watching it. And that sometimes is totally okay. 100%. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Where did we watch this, Max? Where is it streamable for our audience? I have a copy. Okay, you own it, yeah. but you don't want all of our listeners going near your house, do you? Uh, <laughs> I mean, they are. <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell you how many people I've introduced this movie to. Well, you introduced me to it, and I freaking loved it. You know what? It's not streaming. I think you can rent it on Apple TV. Yeah, you can Amazon. rent it on Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube. It's worth the four bucks, my friends. It's absolutely worth the four bucks. And it's family-friendly. It's very family-friendly, yes. Again, my daughter and I have already watched it together <laughs> it was an easy choice you know like how some people watch the office to feel comforted you know they watch it over and over again that's how i feel about this movie excellent seven brides for seven brothers excellent first choice max my first choice also one of my favorite films ever and it's the film zoot suit by luis valdez and it's based off his own stage play that he wrote and also directed perhaps one of my favorite films of all time, not just one of my favorite musicals of all time. And it follows essentially the Sleepy Lagoon murder trial, which if you don't know, is this pretty famous murder trial that happened in Los Angeles in the 1940s. They kind of took some liberties in this film with, with some of the facts. And also because like there were real people, I think they had to change some of the facts. But in the film, we have Henry Reyna, who is this young Mexican-American man, and he's about to head off to the Navy and fight for Uncle Sam in World War II. He's going to leave East L.A. He's going to leave his Pachuco identity behind. <laughs> but on his farewell night, he and his friends, they get mixed up in this massive brawl by the Sleepy Lagoon. One man ends up dead. Henry and his friends are tried with no evidence. And the film follows this trial period follows them in jail, follows the court case, as Henry just really tries to maintain his sanity. And he's got this fantastical devil on his shoulder that's called El Pachuco. El Pachuco. El Pachuco. He is. You gotta do the hand movement. You gotta do the hand movement. El Pachuco. Orale. Orale. Uh, he is brilliantly played by Edward James Olmos, and probably totally. Edward James Olmos is like, best performance ever I'd say. one of the best for sure he's so good in this he steals the film yeah and i think he was in the play before this also yes i'm pretty sure he's el diablo incarnate yeah for sure 
the film's very like unique in that it's when you're watching the movie, it's being performed on a stage for an audience also. It's made to look like a stage play. They acknowledge that it's a play. They acknowledge that there's an audience watching it. They even at times cut to the audience and they kind of like play a role in the film as like the the observer who is like watching, and, you know, this. Henry Rina and, and, and El Pachuco walk through the audience and the audience yeah. is watching them having this scene together. It's, mm-hmm. It is exactly like what we were just talking about where like you don't forget that you're watching a movie. Right. You're watching a movie, watching a play. And like, that is, that's okay. That's a good thing. That's what the, that's what the makers of this want you to experience. Not forget you're watching art. Don't get too sucked in. You have to be, you have to have a good distance from it to understand what's happening. Absolutely. When I was growing up, this movie was on kind of on repeat in my house. You know, growing up, there was not a lot of movies about like Mexican Americans or Chicano culture. So like my grandma and my mom loved this movie. My grandma was like a huge Edward James almost fan. She wanted to marry him. But it wasn't until I got older that I was like able to appreciate how impactful the story really was. And also just like how creative some of like the filmmaking techniques that were used were because, you know, growing up, it's just like, oh, you know, I like this song. I like that song. Look at her. She's pretty. But, you know, now I really appreciate the artistry and also just like how incredible the story is and. And the music kicks ass. The music is like totally, really totally kicks ass. Yes. Um, and you know, this is, this is kind of what we were talking about in the very beginning. Like what is a movie musical? And this movie is the one I think out of all six that really is the blurred line between yeah. the music isn't inherently pushing forward plot or right. uh, sometimes it is like on occasion, like the dance sequences, like when they go to the dances, like yes, that is yeah. sometimes they're not necessarily within the plot, but definitely the music is integral to the cultural aspect of the film. Right. And for the tone of the film, certainly mm-hmm. like yeah. there's some play between like kind of sometimes how upbeat and fun the music is versus like kind of how sad and, fucked up the plot is right right like you need that that kind of juxtaposition to heighten both there's one incredible song that is so groovy and so soulful and kind of sinister and it is literally about the guys in jail masturbating and it's called handball that's right (laughs) and it took me years years of watching this movie to realize what like what, about. yeah it was like i'd watched it you know growing up even in my teens i was like oh yeah yeah that's a good song and then like i think i re-watched it one time in my 20s and i was like oh my god this song is about jerking off <laughs> and i was like she's just like kind of let it go and and it was like he'll catch on someday i guess yeah so you know if you're wondering parents at home can i show this to my kids yeah they ain't gonna understand no, yeah, probably you know but the subject it. matter is heavy. You know, that's yeah, the subject matter is heavy for sure. Subject matter is heavy. And, you know, credit to Edward James almost. The El Pachuco character is scary. Like yeah. my wife was like, what is this? She's like, I don't like this. And I'm like, that's kind of the point. You yeah. Know, like, you're not meant to. Yeah. It's a dark character. It's a dark film. And it's worth checking out just because it's so unique. It's a very unique film. I don't, I've never I haven't seen another movie like it i was just gonna say it is definitely the most unique unorthodox in a great way it's definitely the most unorthodox pick out of all six of these for sure which is awesome what a cool distinction 
The only one other thing that I'm going to bring up is there is one character. Actually, there's two actors in this movie that pop up in another one of your picks. Yeah. Kelly Ward. Yes. Who plays Tommy in this. And then I forget the other guy's name. Craterface. Craterface. That's how I, that's how I've always known him. <laughs> that's how I've always known him. That's who he is to me. <laughs> Zoot suit. Check it out. Let's see where it's streaming here. Yeah. Where is it streaming? Cause again, you lent this to me on DVD. I feel like this is a super under the radar. It's a very movie. under the radar film. Yeah. It's, it's extremely regional too. Like it, takes place in LA. It was mm-hmm. made in LA. I think the original production was at Mark Taper Forum. Yep. And then it was, you know, made into a, it's a pretty small film. Like it, it's not a huge, lavish musical. Yeah. And I think all of that stuff is, I like it. It's appealing. It has a very personal feel to it. Absolutely. So it is just available to rent on YouTube, Amazon, you know, the places where you rent movies or you can go to your local video store, Cinephile Video on Santa Monica Boulevard. Help your video stores out. Stay alive. Max, your yeah. second pick. Okay, my second pick is very similar to the one that you just picked. And after we watched it, after you and Sonia came over and watched it, we had a long conversation about, in many ways, how similar it is to the one that you just talked about. It's Fiddler on the Roof by United Artists 1971. Based on the 1964 musical of the same name, directed by Norman Jewison, who is not Jewish by any means, but he is the most hilariously Jewish. Norman Jewison is not Jewish? Norman Jewison, not Jewish, and directed the quintessential Jewish movie. I know, isn't that hilarious? And it stars Topol, Chaim Topol, as Tevier. And uh, for those of you who don't know, who have never heard of Fiddler because you're living... Uh, in the most anti-Semitic place on earth. I mean, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and Fiddler on the Roof is about a milkman in 1905 Russia. He lives in a shtetl, which is Yiddish for a tiny Jewish village. A shtetl attached to a larger village full of regular Russian people. It's based on a collection of Shalom Alechem stories about Tevye the milkman and his wife Golda and their five daughters. And how difficult life is but how rewarding life is that the good is always followed by the bad and the bad is usually followed by the good and that's kind of i think one of the big takeaways of this but the movie we can talk just a few facts about the movie nine million dollar budget and grossed almost 90 million dollars worldwide this was the highest grossing film of 1971 incredible which i think is pretty awesome and topol who played Temier in this movie, started in the West End in this role in 1967. So there's only a four-year difference between when he started playing this role in 67 and when he did it in the movie. When he started in the West End on this role, he did not speak English. He is from Israel originally, and he memorized the script phonetically for like six months before he was transferred to the West End to do it. There. Wow. Yes. And then Norman Jewison flew out to see him perform in the London production and picked him over. And this, some of these people, the, some of the list of people that was, that, that was on the short list to play Tevye is insane to me. Danny Kay. Okay. <laughs> too funny. I love Danny Kay. Also Jewish, but too funny. Yeah. Rod Steiger. Okay. 
Walter Matthau, which is a very different type of sad wow, sack. Yeah. Richard Burton, and then and apparently, because why the fuck not? Frank Sinatra, who had also expressed <laughs> interest in the farm. Tradition. Hey. Tradition. Tammy <laughs> the milkman. I mean, like, he spends half the movie covered in horse shit because he's like pushing around a cart. I, can you imagine Frank Sinatra doing that in any context whatsoever? Oh my God. It's so funny. It's so funny. The movie was nominated for like eight Oscars. I think it won three of them. Heim Topol was nominated for Best Actor and he lost to Gene Hackman for The French Connection. Oh. And this is a good segue, if you don't mind, um, to talk a little bit about like the cutoff of the lavish, like over-the-top movie musical and yeah. like the transition into, you know, because I know your next pick, your next two uh-huh. picks are, are this exact, what we're heading into. But right. like I always think of the death of the classic old-school musical as happening right before this it's hello dolly yeah right hello dolly nearly bankrupted 20th century fox truly it was nominated for a bunch of oscars and only won like one you know what came out the same year as hello dolly is easy writer you cannot pick two more More different (laughs) they are they are on so opposite ends of the filmmaking spectrum right i'm like uh, what came out before this? Bonnie and Clyde, uh, you know, Midnight Cowboy was just like right around this yeah, time. This, this was this was like the dawning of New Hollywood. You know, right. Chinatown probably. Uh, it's yeah. Godfather comes out right after right, this. Yeah, yeah. So Hello Dolly, which is about you know the gay nineties, eighteen nineties in in America, and these big costumes and the original cast had Carol Channing and the movie. I love, I love, I love Hello, Dolly. But like to say it was out of touch is an understatement for what yeah. the audiences wanted at that time. And so for Fiddler to come out and have such a, like a gritty realness, it has a true grittiness to it. It's filmed on location in Yugoslavia. They use these like extras in the movie to look like they are, I mean, they are living in a, nowheresville yugoslavia they have no running water they have no electricity i mean that's their real life and these are the people they use as extras in the film yeah brilliant yeah it's brilliant and it's inconceivable that something like hello dolly which came out just two years before this would have done something like that right like now musicals truly pivot towards like that cinema verite right yeah true real trying to capture some of the real life and so yes they're singing of course they're singing it's a musical but it's also heavily heavily grounded in reality which is very cool very cool and often very painful sometimes with this film brutal i mean yeah why do i love this movie so much this is the movie that when i was sick in school i would watch like i would would stay home from school and i would watch it because it would make me feel better because I'd be like, well, at least my family's not getting kicked out of my country. Right. At least my children, my future children will want to talk to me or whatever. You know, I'm like, the events of this movie are so sad that it made me feel better in comparison. Oh, my life's not that bad. Right. Yeah, remarkably, 
I saw this movie for the first time just a few months ago with you and Sonia and Emily at your house. Obviously, I'd heard of Fiddler on the Roof. It's like one of the most famous musicals of all time. The only thing I really knew about it was seeing every year the trailer at the Lemley around Christmas time that they're going to promote the, uh, the sing-along, which plays there every Christmas Eve. And that trailer made the film look like <laughs> this happy-go-lucky, just like the most fun, nice film ever made. I was like, ah, that looks like a great time. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of parts in this film that are a total great, great, great about time. An hour, an hour and 20 minutes, it's pretty happy. <laughs> And then it just rips your heart out. You had warned me. You were like, oh, get ready, bring the tissues or something. And I was like, what are you talking about? I saw the trailer. It looked like a grand old time. We're going to be, we're going to be talking about tradition and singing. Ah, ah, yeah, matchmaker, matchmaker. Yeah, yeah, come on. I looked over at the end. Sonia was full on sobbing. <laughs> yeah. I think a couple days removed, I think she texted both of us that she yeah. was in her car driving somewhere and you know she was just thinking about the film and she just broke down and had to, and had to pull over that's how impactful this film is and as you mentioned just a total shift a total bridge film for musicals honestly my favorite so i lent you the book the tradition book i don't know if you got a, if you got the chance to read it yet i know you're very busy. i haven't i haven't yet the book is about the play but there is a, an incredible story in it that I, I truly think just like sums up why I love Fiddler so much because it is still one of the most performed musicals in the world after all this time. It has not right. lost its touch. By the way, Topol was in more than 3,500 performances on stage as Stevia, the milkman. But my favorite story is Sheldon Harnick, who wrote the music, was in Japan promoting the Japanese version of Fiddler on the Roof. It had been translated into Japanese. This was like in the late 60s, early 70s, I think. And he met with one of the Japanese producers. The producer asked Sheldon Harnick on like opening night. He said, uh, do people outside of Japan like this musical? Like, do they get it? Do they get it? <laughs> right. And Sheldon Harnick was like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean? And the producer was like, yeah, because it's so Japanese. It's quintessentially <laughs> Japanese. Right. And the way Harnick explains it is like, it's about a poor man who has nothing but his honor and his family and his love of God. And he has to do everything he can to preserve those things. And if that's not relatable to every person on the planet, I don't know what is right and i think you know as a kid i love the music and as an adult i love that message I really really resonate with that you talked about it when you led us into this film just the similarities between this and zoot suit we talked about it the night that we watched it too you know it's right. like it is universal because so many cultures so many histories have dealt with this very thing and what they have to fall back on is family love and pride culture yeah family yeah. love culture pride i mean yeah it's about being stepped on mm -hmm. and having to bounce back you just yeah. got to figure out you got to pivot you got to do something else and you got to keep going that's why i loved zoot suit so much when i watched it i mean i was like captivated because i was like this is the chicano version of fiddler on the roof <laughs> right in a sense you know like I, I i totally get it an incredible film after seeing it i was just like my god yeah one of the best films ever made not just one of the best musicals ever made yeah. fiddler on the roof available to rent wherever you can rent your stuff streaming or at cinephile video if you live in los angeles sticking with jewish plight cabaret <laughs> is my 
second pick by the great Bob Fosse. The film was made in 1972, stars Liza Minnelli and Michael York. It takes place in early 1930s Germany during the rise of the Nazi party. On the surface, the film and the musical is about these two characters, Brian Roberts and Sally Bowles. That's Michael York and Liza Minnelli. They're young. They're living this young, exciting life that involves a lot of drinking and sexuality. Sally performs at this Kit Kat Club, which is a cabaret downtown. She's wicked sexual, and she's smitten over Brian a little bit. But Brian's kind of questioning his sexuality. Eventually, they just start a sexual relationship anyway. But then they come up on this millionaire, Maximilian, and he starts spoiling them both. And it's like a life of glamour and glitz. And they end up in a love triangle. All of this plot is extremely titillating and entertaining and extremely well done and well performed. It's all kind of like a red herring, because while all this is happening in the background of this, we see the growth of the Nazi party and the Nazi movement. And we, the audience, and the characters in the film, the characters who are going to see the cabaret, the characters that we're spending the most time with, they are more or less ignoring this growing issue and growing problem. They're having fun. They're having fun. fun. They're, They're turning to booze. They're turning to sex. They're turning to entertainment until it's too late. There is a very evident place where you know it's too late. There's a few scenes that just like when I first saw this, I was I had the pleasure of seeing this for the first time on the big screen mm. at the New Beverly and, and a gorgeous print of it, I might add. So I was very blessed. But there's two scenes that absolutely just shook me to my core to where I was like borderline shaking. One is that scene where they're at the park or something and they're interrupted by this blonde boy who starts singing this old German tune is like tomorrow belongs to me. It's like a really pretty, gorgeous blonde boy. And you see all these people like looking at him and some are into it and some are kind of like ignoring him. And then the camera tilts down and you see that he's adorned with the Nazi thing. The whole meaning of the song completely changes. It's just like, oh my God, it's like, it's horrifying. It takes your breath away. It really takes your breath away. And then the other thing that just shook me is if you haven't seen the movie and you are going to watch it and you don't want spoilers, maybe skip ahead, hit that fast forward button like three times the final scene and in particular the final shot of the film just after this epic performance by Liza Minnelli she's singing the song from the movie the cabaret song and she's incredible and she's like come on in it's the cabaret and don't worry about the outside world and you know live life live life and then the final shot of the movie is it pans through this like a, a mirror or something but it's all distorted and through the mirror we see the audience who's you know kind of us. And it lands finally as, as it ends this pan through the reflection, it lands on these two Nazis freeze frame credits. It's like, Holy mother of God. I cannot yeah. remember a more impactful final shot of a film. That's just like, good Lord. What a picture. What a picture. You know, I've seen this on stage and I think that even more so now it's been updated to reflect like what actually happened where mm-hmm. I've seen like in the end, they finish the show and the lights like came down. And when they came up, all the characters had like yellow stars on their Right. On yeah. Their I've seen, I've seen videos of that in, uh, in the, yeah. on YouTube of the stage play. Yeah. Right. 
And, you know, and it's that leaps ahead quite a bit from the time period that this happens because this is like the early 30s. Right. And that doesn't quite happen for another, a few more years. But it is saying, like, you know, this is coming. So, right. The writing is on the wall. It's done in a little bit more of a subtle way in the film, but it's definitely the writing is on the wall. And it is a wallop of a punch to the gut. Mom Fossey is so good. His direction of this, the choreography, it is in a way like truly genre defying. Yeah, that was the one thing when I saw this, you know, for the first time, I was like, this movie feels avant-garde watching it now. Like this movie feels like edgy out there and in your face. Now the camera work is just like, holy shit, that's insane. And then right. it's just like hell, like so sexual and like. We got an X rating, which I didn't know until right. reading through Wikipedia because, you know, I've only ever seen it on DVD after they re rated it back down to, I don't know, PG or PG. whatever they <laughs> In right. the 80s, you know, they turned and made it PG or PG 13. The movie won eight Academy Awards, including Best Director Bob Fosse, Best Actress Liza Minnelli. Right, Joel best Gray. cinematography. Yeah, Joel Gray, who plays the master of ceremonies, won uh, best supporting actor. <laughs> Joel Gray went on was on an episode of The Muppet Show when it was on in the seventies. Oh no, kidding. that's how I knew him at first. Like, was like Joel Gray. Oh yeah, he was on The Muppet Show. And then I watched Cat Right. I was like, oh oh, this is this is why. <laughs> right, why right. He was on the Muppet Show. If you haven't seen it, my friends, for the love of God, check it out. It is a feast for the mind, the body, and the soul. And it is also available to rent wherever you rent your streaming movies. Cabaret by Bob Fosse. And the music's by Kendra Neb, who wrote Chicago and all that jazz, I think. Right. So if you like that kind of stuff, you'll really like this one. For mm-hmm. sure. Max, guess what? We've both done two. And that means it's time for us to take a break, everybody. When we return on Film Forward... Intermission, we're going to get our final picks from Max Sopkin and me. Give me three musicals when we return on Film Forward. We'd like to take a minute to talk about LADFF sponsor E-Minutes. E-Minutes is a corporate entertainment law firm that handles the corporate minutes for more than 38,000 entities involved in the entertainment industry. Like last year, they're sponsoring an award with the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival called the Emerging Filmmaker Award. You can learn more about our partnership with E-Minutes Arts and their mission to amplify the voices of underrepresented storytellers at eminutes.com forward slash arts. That's eminutes.com forward slash arts. All right, everybody, welcome back to Film Forward. We are here with my good friend, Max Sopkin, a great actor and an expert in musicals, musicals, history. And he has been helping us out with, give me three, three musicals. So far, he has selected Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful film. And Fiddler on the Roof, an incredible picture. And I have recommended... Zoot Suit, perhaps the most under-the-radar, underrated musical ever, as well as Cabaret, the most overrated musical ever. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. No, I think it's perfectly rated, actually. I think <laughs> it's perfectly rated. People regard it very highly, and it's yes. deserved. So, Max, before we get into the final picks here, you said you had a few 
runners up. Yes. That were great films, but not quite good enough. What are these movies? You know, and here's the thing. That's like almost not true because I could really, this list could have consisted of any of these in terms of yeah. like what I truly love. And this is like, it's like saying like, pick your favorite Beatles song. All right. Okay. Well, right. sure. I could give you three, but I could right. also give you like 30. Right. Musicals um, is a, such as a broad. They're very well maybe a part two of this episode somewhere down the line a year. Well, from now. And then we can talk about these runners up in it. And here's a few that I really, truly love that we obviously won't get to talk about today. But if your viewers, if your listeners are curious, they can go after these. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, one of my absolute favorites. It's a bananas film. Stars Dick Van Dyke on a flying floating car. Hello, Dolly with Barbara Streisand. Like I said before, I truly love Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly, obviously. But we talked about this. It's funny because I love Singing in the Rain. It's not a good musical. Like the musical itself is like, it's just a piecemeal together from old Nacio Herb Brown songs. Right. But the movie is just fun. It's just pure. The movie's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. My Fair Lady, which I absolutely love. Sound of Music. I'm a Julie Andrews fanatic annie i love the movie version of annie even though from 1982 with eileen quinn and albert finney even though it's very different from the play version i still love the movie aladdin i have aladdin on here the the 1992 1994 whenever it's from 1994 the disney movie jafar is my all-time favorite disney character he's the best he's the best I have here the south park movie that is great musical great musical phenomenal. Kyle's mom is a bitch is one of the absolute <laughs> funniest songs ever written. It's so good. Also that song by, by Satan, you know, he's just singing. He wants to be up there. Legitimately you feel for the Satan. Or how about the kids leading the resistance? Yeah. Like, the song's called literally from like Medjerab. I mean, right. like, it's the resistance lives on, right? That's the name of the song. Right. I've been trying to get Emily to watch it. She's not interested, but I'm like, I think you're really going to love it. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors is fantastic. Some really good performances. And then finally, I've put on here another like underrated, under the radar musical is Cry Baby by John Waters. Oh, yeah. With uh, Johnny Depp. That's an awesome movie. That is yeah. awesome. I need to rewatch so that. True. I haven't seen that in a very long time, but I remember loving it when I... Oh, my God. With uh, Ricky Lake is yeah. in it and uh, Tracy Lord and yeah, Johnny Depp. And I mean, it's it's so fun. It's like super tongue-in-cheek and it makes sense it's like how he makes hairspray and then that gets turned into a really phenomenal musical also i mean i love the movie version of hairspray too yeah i love his version of hairspray the movie oh so fun yeah so fun all right your final pick here it is this final pick is the reason i am on this podcast to begin with because <laughs> you had a guest on here um last year and her name was shannon devito and she was in a movie musical herself. Right. Summer, I totally forgot about this. No, it's called Summer... Best Summer Ever. Yeah. Best Summer Ever. Yeah. And she, you asked her for Give Me Threes, and you were talking about movies, and you guys talked about Grease. And she was saying how much she hates the end of the movie. I was out for a walk with a dog, and I was like, I was like talking out loud. I was like, <laughs> apoplectic. I was like, you could not be more wrong, Shannon. You have no idea what you're talking about. And I texted you immediately. You did. And, I, and then you were like, you got to be on this podcast and come talk about it. So here I am, Shannon. I'm throwing down the gauntlet. I'm here to talk about Greece and how much I absolutely love this film. Paramount, 1978, 
based on the 71 musical. It's directed by Randall Kleiser, who directed The Blue Lagoon, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, and also one of my personal favorites, Big Top Pee Wee, which if you've never seen, is so funny, dude. <laughs> I mean, I don't even have to tell you who's in it. It's yeah. uh, Living Newton-John, Jeff Conway, Stocker Channing. I mean, it's got Sid Caesar. It's got Craterface in it, too. Don't forget about him. God, I can't forget about Craterface. <laughs> this movie, it's like hard to understate truly like the cultural impact, like the one-two punch of John Travolta between Saturday Night Fever and Grease. Back-to-back years, having the back-to-back biggest films. Who does that? That's, you know, that's Tom Hanks in Philadelphia and Forrest Gump, but Philadelphia didn't have the same kind of impact that Saturday Night Fever. Right. Philadelphia is not doing a theater run right now for its 45th anniversary and still selling out shows. Yeah, not even close. I mean, it's an, it's an important film for sure. It's a, it's it's a, great, it's a great film. Those, those are all great films, but like people love this movie in a way they don't love most movies. Yes. When Grease came out, it was the highest grossing musical film ever. Its soundtrack was the best selling album of the year in 1978 after Saturday Night Fever. Which came out the year before. That's how right. that's how good it was still selling. And it was nominated for an Oscar for hopelessly devoted. I mean, it is monumental. Do I even have to explain the plot of Greece to people? I mean, no, it's about I don't think Rydell, so. 1959, Rydell High, some kids fucking around. I mean, like it's it's all <laughs> of it. Like it's it's fun. It can be a family musical for sure. Like lots of jokes went out went way over our heads when we were kids, and then you watch it as an adult. And when Rizzo comes down the drain pipe after she leaves the slumber party, the guys are in the car and she, she hits the brakes. She turns around and she says, so what do you think this is? A gangbang? You know, like when you're a kid, you don't get that joke. Right. <laughs> right? Danny leaves. And Rizzo just to like rib him is like, where are you going, Zook? Flog your log? And she, she's like, whatever. Like, oh my God. <laughs> I guess if you're seven, you don't really, you really don't understand. You really don't understand it. Bite the weenie, Wiz. <laughs> okay, you know what? You can't talk about this movie and not talk about producer Alan Carr because if you love movies and you love like the big spectacle of it, Alan Carr is the guy to talk about. And there's a really great documentary on Amazon Prime called The Fabulous Alan Carr. I watched yes. that it's like a month or two ago. He's such a fascinating person. He and Robert Stigwood did a lot of producing together. You know, he's Robert Carr was really like a like a PR maven. Like, that's what he did, right? He put together the PR package for Tommy and for Saturday Night Fever. And, and the Deer Hunter. And the Deer Hunter, yeah, which is, like, really hilarious to think yeah. about. Yeah. But, you know, he's he helped get the movie on, camp, like, the campaign for awards and stuff. But he helped turn Greece into this, like, monumental... The monumental thing that it is today. He's the one that took the flyer on Olivia Newton-John despite having basically no acting experience or very, very little. He just like lived a larger than life life. I mean, I guess he just was a huge... He, he wore caftans like all the time. Like that's what he was known for. <laughs> his caftans. Right. And I think people now know him as like that really devastating, <laughs> devastatingly bad Oscars right. package that was put together. The Snow White Oscars, which like really killed his career. But I mean, Alan Carr brought like La Caja Full to America, the birdcage. Why the birdcage is popular here is because of Alan Carr. That's, right. Right. You can't, you know, can't discredit that. He's great. 
and the movie's great. I think, like you, this movie was in our VCR like weekly, at least growing up. My family loved this movie. When I put it on, it's like one of those things where it's just like, yeah, like you said earlier, like if it's on, I'm going to watch it because it makes me feel good. Kind of like Zoot Soup. When I started watching it as an adult, I was just like, actually, I just watched it recently through the lens of like doing this podcast. Like I'd be like, all right, I got to talk about this movie. I don't need to watch it again, but it's an excuse to watch it again. But I started watching it to like analyze it for the first time ever in my life. And I was like, God, this movie is impressive. It is really, really impressive. The vocal performances, just incredible. The choreography, the camera work, like, I mean, it's it's a good movie. It's a really, Randall really Kaiser, good movie. Randall Kleiser, the director, had directed like one thing before this, and it was a TV movie with, with John Travolta called The Boy in the Bubble. I mean, like, he basically so this is, had no experience before making this. This is a miracle. This is a this yeah. is a miracle of a film. Truly. Truly. I mean, it, that, well, and the fact that all the actors were like in their 30s. <laughs> right. And <laughs> high school. I was reading that Alan Carr had them all do a crow's feet screen test because, uh, <laughs> because they had to see if they could pass off as like vaguely teenage-ish on screen, which they definitely don't, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's it's pretty funny. So I got a couple questions for you regarding this movie, but before that, yeah. I wanted I wanted to talk about because I, I thought about the ending the last time I watched this yes. movie, and maybe it was because I was feeling great after watching a great movie. But uh, I'm with you on this that I think the ending is quite beautiful. You're a married uh, man, man. Yeah, you're a married man, and you know that in order to make a marriage work, you have to change. Yes. You have to be flexible. You have to make compromises. You got to be willing and you got to want to change for the better for your partner. That is what the end of Greece is about. Danny makes it on both sides. Yeah. On both sides. Danny is cuts down his smoking. He stops, you know, stealing stuff. He goes, (laughs) tries out for the track team and he like really improves himself overall. Sandy is like, well, I, I want to. My partner happy. You know what I can do? I can sex it up a little bit if I know that he likes this because I want to make him happy. And she fits in. They sew her into those pants. You know, like it is a successful relationship is all about compromise. I mean, essentially what they've done is communicate their desires to each other and then they do it. If that doesn't make it a fantasy, I don't know what does. Definitely a fantasy for sure, but. 100%. But the other thing is like, you know, I was thinking about you know, what was said and and it's, and it's not the, you know, Shannon was not the only, the first person to have that criticism. And I think people give that ending a bad rap with the Olivia Newton-John thing. It's because she looks so incredible in that final scene that they think like, that's the change. That's the only change that she does just because she looks so incredibly sexy. It's like the scene before that, after she watches the race and she has this, this look on her face. It's like, it's time for me to just break out of my shell. It's time for me yeah. to, she's so reserved and she's so yeah. shy and unsure of herself and insecure throughout the entire film. And she is none of that stuff by the end of it. Right. Uh, so, but beyond it being like, oh yeah, she now, now she looks like uh, this, you know, super hot babe. She is an independent woman now. 100% agree. It's such a good take. I truly think that people watch the end and yeah, they think that, oh, just because she's hot now, that's all that Danny cares about. And I think that they forget that he shows up in that scene wearing a lettered men's jacket and all his friends make fun of him. 
Right. They make fun of him. And he's like, I don't care what you guys think. I did this for my girl. Yeah. He says, I'm going to do this for Sandy because I'll do anything to get her back. Right. And I've been there before. Mad respect for that. I mean, honestly, like for an 18 year old, you know, to be like, I got to turn my life around. That's dude. I mean, I love, I love that ending. I really do. Okay, do me a favor. Click on the link that I sent you in that ch- in that chat. There I go. I'm clicking the link now. I need you to listen to this. It's good, right? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So what Nick is listening to a Mexican pop group called Team Beriche, and they are performing a song from Vaselina, which is <laughs> for Greece. And he's listening to Noches de Verano, which is summer nights. Um, and this was a, this was a production put on involved this pop group, Team Beriche whole thing was translated into Spanish. It's an adaptation of the stage musical and not of the movie. Right. Very similarly to what we were talking about with Fiddler being in Japanese. It's a relatable story. There's teenagers all over the world doing all sorts of teenager shit. And why shouldn't you be translating stuff like this into all sorts of languages so people all over the world can enjoy it? I thought this was like the perfect find for your film diversity podcast. Yes. Because I'm like, this is what this is all about is taking great art and making it approachable and equitable and good for everybody. I love it. Here's my question for you, Max. This is the big question of the night here. This is okay. a tough one. What is your favorite song from Greece? <sighs> That's a really hard one. I know. And That's I think, really you know, like one. for me as a kid, it was always. Grease Lightning. It was always Grease because it was just like, it was so cool. And like, you know, the scene is awesome where he's like coming down off the, the engine. And it's just you like, you're just like, God damn, I want to be a T-Bird. Gotta get a, gotta get a real pussy wagon, huh? Right, <laughs> right. Now, as an adult, though. Yes. It is easily, there are worse things I could do. So good. By Rizzo. It's a great performance of that song. Yeah. And she lobbied very hard to keep that in the movie. They were going to cut it. Yeah. She's like, you can't do that to my character. It's, it's like one of the most powerful, you know, like watching it now as an adult, again, it's just like, it's the most like powerful character heavy song. That's another song where it's like, it's like a three minute song. It's two shots. And it's just her. Right. It's just her walking through, watching the emoting. guy that she's smitten on, emoting, singing her ass off and yes. feeling. And it's all right here in her face. And it's like incredible. Okay. I think... I think that there's two songs I really love and both are for like purely personal reasons. Yeah. I love hopelessly devoted. I think as far as like writing, you know, I'm not always a fan of when movies adapt a musical and then write a original song, trying to win an Oscar for it. Looking at you, Les Miserables. <laughs> very, very rarely is successful. Hopelessly devoted. is a phenomenal song. Yeah. Despite being a country song, it is still phenomenal. And Olivia Newton-John sings the shit out of it. I also love, I love it because that's the song that my wife does at karaoke and she absolutely crushes it. I also love summer 
nights. Yeah. Because that's the song that my wife and I do together at karaoke. Yeah. That's great. This is how much Greece plays into our lives. At my wedding, at the end of the ceremony, we kissed. I stepped on the glass, Mazel Tov, and the theme from Greece started playing immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and then we walked back down the aisle. I mean, like, that is how integral to my life, to our lives, this movie is. When we were home from the hospital with the baby, we were like, just couldn't even, our brains like didn't work. We were like, just needed a movie to put on and make us feel better. What do we put on? Greece. It was a no, it was such an easy choice. We just went, oh, let's put it on Greece. Yeah. It truly does stand the tests of time. And you know what? And it's okay to be like, I love this popular movie. People are like, oh, your favorite band is the Beatles? Like, yes, they're very good. <laughs> right. I don't, know if you've, I don't know if you've heard any of their albums, but they've, uh, they have some bangers, as the kids say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you like Grease? Um, fuck yeah, dude. It's phenomenal. It's just pure unbridled joy the whole time. It's fun. It's so much fun. You know what? Grease is the word. And it's Grease streaming. <laughs> it's streaming on Hulu and it's streaming on Paramount Plus and it's streaming on Amazon Prime Video. And I think by the time this comes out, it will be out of theaters. But as we're recording this, yeah. it is currently playing in the theaters, everybody. 45 years later, it's playing in the theaters. This ain't the first time it's gone back to the theaters. It's like the fourth time it's gone back to the theaters. Oh, yeah. I also want to add just briefly, Grease 2, train wreck. I've never even, <laughs> I've never even finished it. I have attempted to watch it like three or four times. And every time I get bored and distracted, I'm like, whatever. I get by the bowling, by the time the bowling song comes around, I'm like, I'm out. I have watched the entire film multiple times. It's not good. That's all you got to say. But I do like that song, Cool Rider, that uh, Michelle Pfeiffer sings. That's uh, I like that. That's the one good song of the whole movie. Oh, my God. It's all bad. You're like, it's, this is it's, guess what we didn't need a sequel of. It's, it's, I'd rather it's, have like 10 more Toy Story movies. It's really, really bad. Don't go watch Grease 2. Watch Grease <laughs> And Shannon DeVito, if you're listening to this, hopefully we have changed your perception on that ending. Love you, Shannon. If not, we still love you. You know, that's why film is subjective. Speaking of subjective, <laughs> my final pick. <laughs> also, like very similar, I think, in, in terms of like just pure unbridled zaniness. Yes. Such a good. The Rocky Horror Picture Show, my third and final choice. I'm going to take our audience back the year 2007, I think. You and I were both 17 years young. And Max, you took me to go see the Rocky Horror Picture Show midnight screening at the New Art Theater on Santa, Santa Monica. Monica Boulevard, right next to Cinephile Video for all my listeners out there. And we saw it with a full shadow cast. I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no idea what I was in when I was in it. And I had even less of an idea of like how much I was about to fall in love with this whole scene. What you're describing is like a core memory and essentially yeah. like, you know, a truly like defining moment of your life as a teenager. And this would set the scene for you for the next like five, six years of your life for sure. Yeah. 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 I'm not going to go into the plot of this film because there's absolutely no point. I've seen this movie like literally no 200 plot. times and I can't even tell you what the plot is. 
Uh, it involves aliens, kind of sexuality, definitely. Frankenstein. It's an adaptation of of, yeah. of uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Kind yeah. of. Kind of. <laughs> it's a queer B-movie horror adaptation of Frankenstein, essentially. But the scene at one of these midnight screenings is just out of this world because you have people screaming stuff that kind of time out with what the film is saying. So you would scream something and then the screen would answer it because it's so this, this has been going on for now 40 plus years at the time it was, you know, over 20 or 30 years, whatever, 25 years, people are throwing stuff at the screen timed out with the movie. And there's a cast, a shadow cast performing the film in sync with what's happening on screen in front of the movie. And they're lip syncing. They're lip syncing. Yeah. And I got hooked immediately. And I got hooked on the actual movie, the characters, the colors, the vibrant. Tim Curry leads the cast. He is like mind blowingly good. You got a very young Susan Sarandon in there who is Barry just Bond. like fun to watch. Barry Boswick's in there. Meatloaf. Barry Boswick, by the way, played Danny Zuko on Broadway in Greece. There it is. So basically, I got hooked on Rocky Horror Picture Show. And then I joined a shadow cast and Rocky, as Max said, just became like a huge part of my life for years, kind of. Max, I know you're a fan, obviously. What are your thoughts on Rocky Horror? What can you remember about those early days of us going to Rocky? Well, that we would drive from Rancho Cucamonga to West LA, which if you you guys know, you know, that's very far. And we'd wait outside the theater. We'd get there at 11. We'd wait for an hour They'd bring you in. It'd take 45 minutes to get people in the theater. Then they'd do the pre-show and the virgin ceremony. And by the time the movie started, it was 1.30. And the movie's like an hour and 40 minutes. And then when it's done, we would go to Cantor's. Cantor's. You know, we didn't have cell phones at the time. We didn't have GPS or anything. We used the Thomas Guide. to, or And we printed out MapQuest beforehand to figure out where Cantor's was. It's not close to the new art. Not really. And not really close. But we would still go anyway because they were open 24 hours. We'd eat. We'd get, you know, knishes and corned beef sandwiches and then drive all the way back to Upland and we'd be home by like 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning. And that's the, only the kind of thing you can do when you're a teenager because you have just like an endless amount of energy. Yeah. But we did this for my 18th birthday. My parents took us. You were there for my 18th birthday and my sisters, <laughs> my younger sisters. Oh my gosh. My parents and I mean it was a it was a, that's again how important this movie was to us growing up. We go in college and come see you when I was home from college performing. I saw it at the Queen Mary in Long Beach. I've seen it in Slow. I've seen it. I mean, like all over. And other people that were in our friend group would come with us too and have seen it. Like Sam Hunt has seen it multiple times with us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, they have casts yeah. all all over the world, all over the world, and casts that have been around for for literally decades, longer than we are alive. There's been shadow casts going. Well, the movie itself is like this in- incredible mixture of being like simultaneously not good <laughs> and absolutely incredible. Yeah, and you you have to be the kind of person that loves bad movies. Right. You have to you have to want to go see the room. And with Tommy Wiseau, but you have to want to like watch <laughs> Jupiter ascending, or whatever, and make fun of it with your friends to like Rocky. If you don't right. like those things, 
you won't like this film. Right? It's because not, you, it's, not, yeah, it's not a movie to be taken seriously. No, no. And you don't casually put it on like on a Thursday night while you're eating dinner. Nobody on earth has ever done that. Like, yeah. Just don't casually watch it at home. It's not one of those things. It's like greater than the sum of its parts in a sense where you need the whole experience and that's transformative and yeah. so much fun. One thing that is legitimately good in the film besides Tim Curry is the music. The songs are Amazing. awesome. The soundtrack is unbelievably good. Over at the Frankenstein place, I find myself singing truly all the time in the time warp. It has a, has a life beyond this film, way beyond this film. Mm-hmm. You hear it at bar mitzvahs and weddings and, you know, baseball games or whatever. Like Over at the Frankenstein place and the song that opens the film, Science Fiction Double Feature, no matter how many times I performed Rocky, which was, I don't know, a few hundred, a couple, yeah. yeah. Every single show, when those two songs would come on, I would get goosebumps because yeah they're just good and like you could feel the crowd feeling it and you could feel the crowd kind of like light up during those songs and it's just like the electricity in the theater is palpable and you know what i think you can really you get the sense when listening to them especially because richard o'brien is in the movie you really get the sense that he like put his heart into those songs yeah when, when writing them you know um Hot Patootie is electric. The song feels like it's on fire, yeah. especially with that saxophone solo. And it's so good. You really get the sense of him as an artist like coming through that music, coupled with his like, just insane riffraff performance. It's right. great. Right. It really is something to be seen and experienced. So my friends at home, if you haven't seen it, check it out. Preferably in a theater with a live shadow cast at midnight which I know is like a daunting ask, but it's drink it's a five hour energy. Yeah. Drink a five hour energy, make it happen. It's something that you will never forget. And it totally, it changed my world for many years. And I owe a lot of that to uh, Max. So Max, thanks for showing me this film. Thanks for the fond memories. Thanks for, for being my friend all these years. Yeah. And thanks for doing this show with me. You want to hear my riff raff impression? Yes. <laughs> Perhaps you better both come inside. <laughs> it's go. pretty good. It's pretty good. That's, that's my response to your incredible <laughs> sense of love and gratitude. You get my, you get my riffraff impression. <laughs> to me, that is a sentimental response. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, Max. This was a blast. I have a feeling like there's going to be uh, a part two somewhere down the line just because there's so many more great musicals to talk about. We we didn't really scratch the surface. These were just ones that we just love and hold a special place in our hearts. And listen, if any of your listeners want to slide into my DMs on Instagram and chat about bed knobs and broomsticks, because I love that movie, mm-hmm. do it. Because and where I, can they find you? Where what's your what's your IG? On Instagram, it's Max Sopkin. M A X S O P K I N. At Max Hopkin, you can find me on there. And I want to talk about musicals all day, every day. Your good opinions, your bad opinions, your hot takes. I want to hear it because I love it. It's fun stuff, man. Absolutely. You can follow us at LA Diversity Film Fest. Once again, Max, thanks for doing this. Thank you all for listening to Film Forward. And we'll catch you next time. 
recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time. <laughs>